0: Amen. Amen. We'll go ahead and grab a seat this morning. We're so glad you've joined us. For those of you at home, thank you for welcoming us into your living room. We're glad to be here. And uh, for those of you that are here, thank you for allowing us to welcome you uh, into our church uh, for the first time in a number of months, live service, only a few of us, uh, but trust me, it's better preaching to a few than to nobody at all. And so we are really grateful that you're here and really look forward to connecting after being a part uh, for so long. For you fathers that are here and that are out there, uh, really thankful for you today and want to say happy Father's Day to you. Uh, Know that we pray for you as a church and we support you and we're so encouraged by the fathers in our church whom we see really eagerly striving to model Christ and raise kids in the ways of Jesus Christ. And so happy Father's Day to you today. If you haven't said yet, happy Father's to your father yet, please do so even right now. I'm okay with that right now. And uh, let's get on with the service as we do that. Uh, But today we're going to be looking at a new sermon series for the summer. We're going to start a new sermon series uh, in the minor prophets, Uh, minor prophets with a major message. And uh, so often I think we uh, understand a lot of the Bible, but one of the most neglected parts of the Bible is the minor Prophets. You understand the Old Testament. Just to help you understand the Old Testament, there's the first five books of the law uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then there's the writing, 17 books from Joshua to Solomon. And then we have the major prophets, five major prophets, and 12 minor prophets making up the Old Testament. And the minor prophets are a key part of what God says to us, uh, spanning over 300 years, the minor prophets, with a important message to speak into the culture both then and now. I want to clarify for you as we get into this, the minor prophets don't mean that they are less than the major prophets. Like the major prophets, these guys like have a, these guys shout God's message. The minor prophets are more, they just whisper God's message. That's not it. They're all equal. The major prophets are just longer books. Minor prophets shorter books. And so, in fact, you put all the minor prophets together, and they take up maybe two-thirds of the book of Isaiah. And so, yet they also contain a major message for God's people throughout history. In other words, the prophets are God's megaphone to preach to the world, the love and the message of God Himself. And so, my goal for this whole sermon series—we're going to be splitting the preaching duties myself and Brad and Andy. My goal for this is to simply educate you, to help you see how important the whole Bible is. And if you think about it, this is the Minor Prophets right here. And so, this is the Prophets right here—a significant part of the Bible that you need to know the character of God and the message of God, almost as big as the whole New Testament which we put so much stock into. So I want to educate you uh, through our staff as we go through with this. I want to enlighten you to the full character of who God is, the full plan of God for your life, and the full heart of God for all people. And I want to energize you, to spur you on in your faith, to want to know God and pursue God and live your life full, wholeheartedly for God. And so as we get into this, I just want to take a few minutes to set this whole series up by helping you understand a little bit about uh, the prophets. The prophets are a big deal in the Bible. The prophets are God's big men on campus. Don't think prophet and pastor in the same sentence. There are, no pro- there are no prophets today. Prophets were to point to Jesus and proclaim God's truth to the world, pointing to the Messiah and all that was to come. Pastors are just regular guys, that, that are called by God, but not in the same way that prophets were. Prophets were not the elite of the day, like today's mega church pastors with all their charisma and their clout. They weren't that type of guy. Some people think, oh, they're prophets. They were like high status. They are actually probably average guys that really nobody liked because of the message that they brought. They didn't have any doctoral degrees or graduation, didn't graduate from any prestigious universities. There was no church votes. Well, we think that's our man. There is no appointment from the Archbishop of Titipu or wherever he came from. These guys were actually singled out and called by God. That's their credential. Called by God. And they had the authority of God as they preached. We say we have the authority of God's word as we preach. Those men could claim they have the authority of God himself as they preached. They carried thus says the Lord authority. In other words, the word of God came to them, and as the word of God came to them, they spoke freely the message that God had. So important was the prophets got the message straight that it wasn't a small deal to say you're a prophet. In fact, every prophet was tested. And if what he said came true, stamp of approval, he's a prophet. If it didn't come true, death. False prophet. Many people claim to be prophets, Proof in the pudding was whether their message actually was fulfilled or not. And they didn't preach simple sermons. They didn't preach the feel-good messages that we see in so many churches today. of like, oh, God loves you and everything's going to be good. No, they came with tough sermons. So as much as it was an honor to be a prophet, a distinction, there was also a burden of responsibility, of excruciating nature that also came with the reality. They were God's mouthpiece for sure. But prophecy isn't always foretelling, well, here's what's gonna happen in the future. You know, if this is what God's gonna do. It's sort of nice and like a crystal ball thing. That's not what prophecy is. It's more of a foretelling. It's more of a, hey, listen up, everybody. God has a message for you today. Here's who he is. Here's who you are. Here's how far apart you are. And here's how intensely God wants to see that gap closed. Really what a prophet did is tell the people of how much God loves them. A prophet also had the intense love of God for the people. And so the prophet was sort of like a a parent searching for a lost child. You know those missing child posters? A prophet was like, like, we got to find the lost children of the living God. He had the same heart of God as he preached the message. The prophet would preach even if it made him uncomfortable And the people uncomfortable because the ultimate end was to see people truly united with God. And the prophet would actually be living out this this whole reality of trying to draw the people back to God. To draw the people back to God. And if you look at the whole narrative of the Old Testament, it's sort of like like this, the chart on the screen here. Nope, not that one. There should be one before that or after that. That one there. The Old Testament is this. It's Israel is tight with God. The God's people are tight with God. God loves his people. Israel rebels stubborn, right? Uh, I think I know better. I'm gonna do it my way. God warns. God just doesn't bring the hammer. He warns. How did he warn? Through the prophets. And so God sent a prophet out of love and concern, but also to bring his message of warning. The prophet was sort of like the big brother. Hey, guys, listen up. If you don't listen up, dad's gonna come after you. Uh, Israel was stubborn, (laughs) Don't need to listen to that. Listen to God. God actually follows through and judges. Israel then realizes how serious God is and how much he does love them. Israel repents, turns from their wickedness. God relents. And then we see Israel tight with God again and the circle continues. Isn't that, even you see that, doesn't it already speak to you of like, oh my goodness, this is my life. Forget the Israelites, forget God's people. This sounds like this is gonna be for me. And guess what? It is it's for me, it's for you. And it starts here in the book of Hosea. And Hosea is the first of the minor prophets, but I want to point this out. The minor prophets in the Old Testament, do not they're not listed in accordance of how they were written and, and when they're recorded. So Hosea is actually not the first minor prophet ever written. Hosea, however, is is the first of the most important of the messages of the minor prophets, in that it shows us the totality of the gospel, uh, pointing towards Jesus in such a clear and profound way. And so the, the prophets lay out like this. Now you can put that other picture up, uh, um, please, thanks. And so the prophets are like this. Uh, Hosea is uh, somewhere in the third or fourth book written, uh, but it has a major message for us and it proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ in clear, meaningful, and an impactful way, as our lives honestly get this our lives mirror Israel, and yet God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that's a bit of a background. Let's get into Hosea, but before we do, as always, I need to pray. This is a, like I said, it's a megaphone into our lives. It's a message we need to hear, it's a message we have to hear. And so I have urgency this morning, if you can't tell already, I have urgency, and I pray you have urgency too. So let me first, uh, before we get into this, let me pray, and then let's understand an overview of the book of Isaiah or Hosea and how this applies into our lives. Let me pray uh, this morning together. Father, we thank you today for the ultimate reality of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us through your Son. Thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us through your Word. Father, we admit that without you showing us who you are, we'd have no comprehension. We'd have ideas. We'd have maybe mixed up thoughts, but we'd have no true comprehension of who you are and what you are all about and ultimately how deeply you love us and the world that we live in. Father, today I pray this as we go through the book of Hosea. God, would you speak in clear and profound ways? Would you help us understand the full reality of yourself Help us see ourselves for who we really are. And ultimately, God, would you help us glory in the wonder of the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ? We love you, God. Thank you that we can be watching online today. Thank you that we can be in this place today, worshiping and and hearing your word with brothers and sisters. But most of all, God, we want you here in this place, we want you in our living rooms through the Holy Spirit. We want to encounter the presence of the living God. May this be so, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you got to Hosea already? Have you got there? Here's where we're going to start. This is the story of Hosea in a nutshell. Point number one, Hosea, a straight message to a backwards nation. Hosea, a straight message to a backwards nation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. We're not going to read every verse like we often do. We're just going to skip through some, but chapter 1 sets it up, so let me help you understand this. Here's what it says. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. So in other words, the whole prophet thing. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri. Biri is a Hittite name from Genesis 26. Tradition holds that he was also a prophet um, from Isaiah 8:19. And so this is like a pastor passing on his calling to his son. But the name Biri, Biri isn't that important, to be honest. It's the name Hosea that is significant. Hosea is Hebrew, and it's almost exactly the same as Jesus or Joshua, which means God saves. Hosea. God saves. And Hosea was one of the prophets that prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, Israel was in two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was Ephraim and mentioned 35 times in Hosea. The southern kingdom was Judah, mentioned about 17 times, to help you understand the distinction. So the northern kingdom was like the rebellious older brother, the wayward brother, the one that was always getting into trouble. And Judah was the, the faithful brother, and the one who was kind of like the little goody two-shoes northern rebellious, southern goody-two-shoes, and this is, uh, Hosea is coming from the northern kingdom, so he wasn't coming to the northern kingdom to give a message like Amos did. He was actually from the northern kingdom. He knew the people. He loved the people. He understood the culture, and he had a message from God uh, for them, and understand the history of where this was coming from. In this time, uh, people would understand the whole timeline by who was reigning as king, and this is the days of Uzziah, it says here, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So Hosea is ministering in the time of Jeroboam, Jeroboam around the 8th century, and this is the time when it was like the best and the worst of times for the Jewish nation in the north. The best of times, and there was kind of a luxurious materialism. There's apparent religious devotion, apparent Apparent religious devotion, and activity and freedom and somewhat of a national security. It was somewhat okay, but the reality is their hearts were completely empty. Their religion was shallow and their corruption was rampant. It was a tumultuous time. In, the case, in this case, it was over 30 years. Uh, the nation had six kings. That's a quick turnover. It wasn't the longevity. They were generally evil kings, and Assyria, the powerhouse of Assyria, tried to come in six times and take over. In fact, three of their kings in this time were assassinated. And so it wasn't like a calm, Canadian, peaceful summer day in Israel, although they had a sense of security. But the reality is the worst part of the northern kingdom, Ephraim, was that they violated the first commandment. Remember what the first commandment is? To have no other gods before me. And they were doing their own thing. In fact, they gravitated towards Baal worship. I know God says he's ours and we're supposed to be his, but Baal seems to be the the, the God who's getting things done. Baal was the Syrian-Palestine God who controlled agriculture. And so since Israel was in agriculturally focused nation, they ended up bowing to Baal for fruitfulness. Instead of praying to God, they're like, Baal's gonna make it happen. Part of the tradition was they go to the temple and they'd have all kinds of deviant forms of worship, including with temple prostitutes and sexual forms of worship. Isn't that messed up? And eating and drinking, and they called it worship. What they believed was the rain was actually the, I'll call it this, the producing Juices of Baal, we'll say that that way, get the picture, to produce crop. And so they figured if they could have, they had sexual relations at the temple, then that would get Baal excited and he caused rain and let's just say this together, messed up. And so this is the culture that Hosea, God, God says, Hosea, I got a message for you to bring the people. Can you imagine Hosea, like, uh oh. Mm. He knew God was holy. He knew what the nation looked like, and yet Hosea, remember, God saves. I'm going to do it, God, because I know you have a plan in this, and he brings the message. But before we get to the message, God says to Hosea, he says, one of the most unorthodox, awkward callings and all the Bible, he says, hey Hosea, I want you to first of all live this picture of what Israel is to me, of what Israel is doing to me. I want you to go and take yourself a promiscuous wife who's going to have your kids, but kids with other men as a picture of exactly who I am, the faithful husband, but who Israel is being in an unfaithful wife." Again, can you imagine getting that call? This isn't a call that any pastor would expect. Hey, I want you to go in. If you're me, you're like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm out. Sorry, I didn't sign up for this. See you later. Can you believe this? Hosea actually followed through. Look what it says in verse two. Don't worry, we're not gonna be this slow through the whole passage. I just wanna bring this out in the forefront. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said, Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom." For the land commits great whoredom. How many times does it say whoredom? When it says it that many times, you know it's got to be a message from God, right? Three times in like a couple verses. By forsaking the Lord. This is such an odd call that people have tried to say, this isn't a real thing. Like this must be a vision, that Hosea had, or this must be like a a make-believe thing that he was living out. No, he actually, look what it says, so he went and took Gomer, who is very beautiful, very attractive, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. He went and took her, again a promiscuous woman, to show the picture of what Israel was to God and what God was to Israel. And he went and took this woman and she bore him a son look at the rest of the chapter. I'm just going to summarize this quickly. She gave him in verse 4 a son named Jezreel. What's your name, little Jezreel? What's this little guy's name? Oh, what a cute little guy. What's his name? Jezreel. In other words, God scatters. Hi, I'm Jezreel. God's going to take you down. That's a little sweetheart, isn't it? It says here in verse 4 that that ultimately God was going to take down the nation, but gonna save them in a hand in his own way. And, and he was gonna make amends for a wicked king Ahab who loved Baal so much that he wanted Baal to be the national religion of Israel. And so, what he did as part of his plan is to murder a fierce follower of God named Naboth in order to seize his vineyard in Jezreel and take over the land for Baal. And God's like, "No, no! I'm Jezreel is mine, and I'm going to defeat Baal in the very place, in the very place where he seemingly triumphed over me. I'm going to take him on his home turf." Next, the Gomer goes and has a daughter named Lo Ruhama, which means it says here, "No mercy." Who names a kid No Mercy? Kind of like unloved, isn't that a little? Not a daddy's little sweetheart girl. Daddy's little sweetheart shirt or a, a daddy's little girl necklace. It's a No Mercy. What's your name, sweetie? No Mercy, unloved. Wow, that's going to mess with someone's psycho- psychological reality, isn't it? But what, what he's really saying is most likely this daughter was out of wedlock. Gomer cheated on him with somebody else and ripped his heart out. Ripped Hosea's heart out. We rips God's heart out when we. Mess around with other gods on him. And so he's saying, no mercy. Notice he doesn't have a scathing rebuke for her. There's no divorce proceedings. He just says, no mercy. You cheat on me. And I have a place in my heart for mercy for you. And then he, Gomer goes and has another son named Loami, Not my people. Another son out of wedlock. Not my people. Again, what's your name, buddy? Doesn't matter. Not mine. Not my people. Kind of like that football player in the XFL. He hate me. Not mine. Man, this is so intense, isn't it? God's basically saying, "You forsake my covenant, and I have every right to scatter you. I have every right to not show you mercy. I have every right to disown you because you're being unfaithful to the faithful God." And yet look at verse 10. Look at verse 10, yet God's saying this, but he's actually not gonna do it because God is so faithful and he can never disown himself. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the seashore. So he's saying these things, but he's saying, you know what? But I will still never forsake my promise to you. Even though you do all these things, you, you, you act in such a way, I will never forsake my promise to you. Remember he promised Abraham in Genesis that the people would be as numerous as the sands on the seashore? They would be his people and they would be his God? Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured by num- or numbered. And in the place it was said to him, You are not my people, be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. They're going to come together, north and the south. They shall appoint for themselves one head, and it shall give, go up uh, from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So bottom line is, God's saying all these things. But yet his heart is still tight with his children. He'll never disown them. He'll never give up on them. And no matter how they act and how far they run, he will still always be their God. It's really a quick overview of the whole book of Hosea. And so Hosea gets up to preach this message and maybe his family's standing around him, we don't know. Maybe, he, maybe they're up on the screen of heaven behind him. So as he's preaching the message, the people before him are looking at him going like, oh yeah, here's an object lesson right before us. This is clear, we get it. At least we hope they do. A prophet, a prostitute, and a perverted nation is what this whole chapter is all about. Quick overview. Chapter 2 paints a picture of Gomer as unfaithful, yet Hosea says he will constantly take her back, he will constantly lavish her with love, and he will constantly cover her nakedness and shame. And, and he just wants her to be faithful. I love you, honey. I can picture her husband saying, I love you, honey. Just be faithful. Chapter three is an amazing story of redemption. It's like the gospel in the Old Testament. After she's run away, chased after all this materialism and all the pleasure and the things she can think get from other people more than she can her husband, she finds herself as a slave being sold. She's bought for 15 shekels. Hosea buys her back. He actually physically buys her back from the slave auction for 15 shekels and a bit of barley. You're like, how much is that? It's not a whole lot of money, but notice this. Back in this day, slaves were worth 30 shekels. The point is, this is how low Hosea had gotten that even... Slave owners would see her as a half-priced bargain, yet Hosea saw her as his cherished bride. Just love me, he says, and live with me already. I'll even buy you back. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come up with this in application. Then chapters 4 to 10 really uncover the true reality of Israel's heart, like Gomer, beautiful on the outside, sweet on the outside, but not so beautiful and deceptively sinful on the inside. Chapter 4, Israel knew God, yet rejected him. No faithfulness, no love, no knowledge of God in the land. And verse 2 of chapter 4, look at it. There's guilty, the rap sheet of the northern kingdom was long. It was longer than we are tall. swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery and, and breaking bo- bounds and bloody murder on bloody murder. And the, the, the cockier they got, the more sinful they got. And they fed off each other's sin and idols everywhere and drinking themselves in worship to death, pimping their lives away. Chapter 5, God says, hear this, listen up, There's going to be judgment coming. Here's the prophet's warning of the spiritual spanking with the wooden spoon from heaven. Parents, we know we don't like to punish our kids. We don't wake up in the morning like, whoo hope they mess up today. It's only going to take about 15 minutes, just for the record. We don't wake up doing this. Why do we do this? Because we love our kids. We'll do anything to get their attention. That's chapter five. Chapter six lays out for Israel. It's a call to Repentance. Sorry, chapter six is a call to repentance and it's a return to, my, return to God call. Chapter six, verses six and seven. You can highlight these verses. And God says this to his people. I desire from you steadfast love. Not sacrifice, not your superficial religion. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I just want your undivided heart. Chapter 7 gives some illustrations of their heart condition. First glance, it almost seems like God's just coming down, and he's like just berating his kids and scolding them. He's not. He's just trying to help them see the full reality of where they are. He uses illustrations like a heated oven. He's saying your sexual desires are like a heated oven, that the fire is out of control. He uses an illustration of a half-baked loaf of bread where one half is cooked, the other half is Mush, a mushy mess, and what he's saying is you've got half your life with God, the other half with the world, and you can't you can't do that, and one half's delicious, apparently the other half is a hot mess, and this is what it looks like to try and be divided between God and the world, and he's the illustration of a dove, and usually we think of a dove as a positive thing, and so innocent, and yet the dove here is used as, as deceived and senseless, it's susceptible to every single trap out there, and then, of course, use the illustration of a faulty weapon, a gun that won't fire or protect because they forgot their shield at home, who is their God. And so chapter 8 basically says you're going to reap the wind and you're going to sow the whirlwind. In other words, my judgment's going to come and it's going to make your head spin. And your world's going to be like a tornado. For those of you who think that God is a loving God, he is. But this is showing the loving aspect of our God, a jealous God, who will do anything, he even discipline you, to make sure you're on his side, to make sure you're with him. Chapter 10, again, the divided heart comes up, professed love, but they lusted after everything but God, claimed truth, but loved falsehood, touted righteousness, but desired evil. God's desire is truth and righteousness and love. It shows us in here God's way of the path. And then chapter 11, we're going to camp on this a little bit in a second in application, but chapter 11 is a powerful reminder that in spite of the sin, in spite of the desperate heart condition, God will never abandon or disown his people. He may be rightfully ticked off right now, but it doesn't change his love for his people. Any parents in here? You parents at home, you know this. Your kids can drive you absolutely batty some days. Dad, you look at your wife, you're like, they're yours for sure. Wives are like, no, no, they're yours, all you. You both go to bed exasperated and you you vent a little bit. Then what do you say at the end before you go to sleep? Man, do I love that little guy. Or man, is that little girl so precious, Right? No matter how hard you try, you couldn't leave them on a street corner because you love them that much. I never understood this as a kid, but I understand as a parent now. Oh my goodness, do you love your kids? The same as God loves you, as described in chapter eleven, chapter twelve, and thirteen. Call to God to return and hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God including that's an autopsy of a nation, how they came to this and got to this, then chapter 14, the end, is simply this. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to show you that God is like this with his children, Open arms, ready to receive, ready to welcome. He's calling you. He's calling you. Even in your sin, he's calling you. And we get all shy. We're like, I can't go home. He's like, just come home. Your bed is ready. There's food on the table. My arms are open. I just want my kids to come home. And when you come home and you put aside your idols, I will give you absolutely everything you ever longed for and needed. And I'll provide for you and I will keep you safe reminds me but if you continue on this path if you continue on this path of forsaking me I'm going to allow Assyria to destroy the nation and I'm going to allow them to lead you into captivity only so that you'll come to your senses and once again see that I am the only place you ought to be. We see it in the whole book. God's sovereignty. God's divine plan. God, God. is working out His plan, even in the good and the bad, and the ugly. God is working out His plan to show His character and to bring His people into a deep and intimate and loving relationship with Himself. Ever read Hosea before? There it is in a nutshell. It's all judgment. It's all judgment. It's all. It's not all judgment. It's who God is. It's who we are. It's a picture of the never ending, always constant, mind-boggling, life-transforming, world-changing reality of the love of our God. God's undying love for his people. I honestly read this book, I read this book, and here's the battle all week. I read this book, I read this book, and I somehow want to be southern, the southern part of Israel. I want to be Judah, but here's the reality. I realize that I am Ephraim more than I ever want to admit to anybody else in this world. And yet God is the same. God is the same in my life as he is in the northern kingdom of Israel's lives. And I have to be honest with you, I just have a hard time with that truth sometimes. I know I don't love like that. I know my propensity is to give up on people. I know how frustrated and angry I get. I can't understand fully how God can continually love his people. First and foremost but how he also continues to love his child, a.k.a. me. It's a powerful book. One we need to grasp. What does this mean for us? What does this mean in our lives? What does this say to us in 2020 in Niagara, Ontario, in the midst of a pandemic... And it's sometimes hard to know what's up and down. Here's what it means. Hosea is God's megaphone into my life, showing me, number one, three application points here, showing me this, my propensity to reject my God. It's even part of the pandemic to help us realize this to help us realize how we put our hope in all the wrong things and, and, and how, we, how we like to claim God, but we live our own lives away from God and how we come to God for all the things that we, all the good things he can give us, but then we really don't want God for, for who God is. We want God for all his blessings, but not really God for God. Maybe the pandemic is just to help us see this reality. And, and to recognize that, man, man, my propensity to to live my life apart from God is astounding. I want you to notice this in the book. We are the prostitute. We are the northern kingdom. It's me. I am the impure. I am the wayward wife. I am the one broken at the core by sin. I am the one who stubbornly refuses to listen to follow. I'm the one who loves my idols more than my God. On my own, here's the reality. I will choose me over God every time. It's so easy for me to pursue pleasure and materialism. We look at Gomer like, what a, what a Gomer. Gomer. She had a husband who loved her. And yet, what a gomer. Because we have a God who loves us. And I'm so prone, I make myself sick to be honest, I'm so prone to pursuing pleasures and partnership with the world apart from God. It's true what Isaiah says, the prophet Isaiah, we are like sheep. who are so easily led astray. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there's none of us that are righteous, none of us that seek God. Romans chapter 3, 23, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, deserving of eternal punishment from God in the lake of fire, says in Romans 6, 23. It's easy to read these passages and skip over the heart-wrenching truth that is contained in them. Simply this, I'm not like Gomer. I am Gomer. Remember that old song we'd sing, come thou fount of every blessing when you grew up in the church? The line that always gets me that I can relate to so well is this, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The truth is, I'm the one who needs reeling in. I'm the one who needs pursuing. I'm the one who needs the once in a while and the kick in the pants. I'm the one who needs to be brought back. I'm the one who needs oppression sometimes to make me come to my senses. It's all about the sinner in need of a savior. Stop for a minute right now with me. I say this to you because I've already done it all week. These are, the, these are the hard ones. Think of all the ways that you, in the last little while, have pimped yourself out to the world and forsaken your God. We put our hope in money. All of a sudden, that's taken away. We realize, oh, there's no hope there. We put our hope in our freedom. All of a sudden, we can't do what we want to do, and we're all angry. Rawr, raw, 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 raw. We love idols. You can make an idol out of anything, right? Family, kids, backyards, cottages, trucks, jobs. We've got so many lovers. Problem is, we think as long as God's on that we'll chain somewhere, but the reality is, God needs to be the top of our lover list, more than our wives, more than our kids, more than our parents, more than our families, Think of all the ways that you and I are like Gomer. Living half-baked, presenting to the people in our church maybe one side of the baked bread, the other side behind the scenes. Oh, we got to protect that. We don't want to show them the hot mess in the oven that's outside of the oven. It's a good repentance passage. Remember why God brings this to us? Not to hammer us, not to make us feel guilty, but to show us that we'd do what? We'd repent and come back to Jesus. That we say, God, I don't want anything else. I just want you. I've seen my sinful ways Now I've seen my wicked ways. Please don't let me walk any longer in this way. I want to be back at home with my husband, with my God, with my father, with you, God. Quite honestly, some of you maybe need to take some time this morning to consider some of the things and actually truly repent. Maybe you know your heart is wayward and you don't even care. Just you know that's a problem. I'm gonna come home at night and pretend everything's good, but during the day I'm gonna go out and that's a problem. God wants you to repent. God wants us to smash all of our idols. He wants us to put him at the top of the love list. God wants us to be right before him. It's time to leave the worldly ways goodbye and time to buy into the statutes of God and the laws of God, which are set out for our good. This whole passage shows me a propensity to reject my God. Here's what else it does, though. If you're like me, you're like, oh man, like I, I'm terrible, I'm worse than Gomer, I'm... Why would God ever want to buy me back? And here's the reality of the second part of this, though. The, the truth is the intensity and the immensity of God's love is also seen, seen in this passage. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so clear in chapter 3, it's astounding. It's so clear in chapter 3 that I encourage you to read it three times this afternoon. Three, per, three times, because chapter 3, three times, read it three times and see how, even though we are Gomer, how much God loves us. Look at what chapter 3 starts with. God tells God tells Hosea, he says, Hosea, go and love her again. Don't stop loving her, Hosea. Can you imagine that? I can't do it, God. I'm out. I can't do it. No, you can go and love her again. It's a picture of the undeserved and unreserved love of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Notice this. Christ loves you in the exact same way as we were in all of our impurities and all of our promiscuity. Jesus came while we were yet sinners and and called us to himself and united himself with those who turned to him by faith and repentance. Jesus bought us, not with 15 shekels and a little bit of barley, but he bought us with his very own blood. God purchased us from the enemy, from our lover, the enemy, with the blood of Jesus Christ that now you are his and you can be completely covered and made pure again by the life of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel message. If you're hearing, you have a heartbeat, say something. There we go. That's why I need to preach to an audience and not a blank room. Do you see it? Do you believe it? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we can't read these passages like, oh, good for Jose and Gomer. No, this is the love of God for you and I. Uh, you know that song, Reckless Love, that everyone debates about? You know that Reckless Love? Everyone debates about it. It's not a good song, whatever. It is a reckless love. It's an I don't understand this kind of love. Unbelievable. Galatians 3, Christ bought us with his blood. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own You're bought with a price, purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Psalm 30. uh, Can you read my own notes with my glasses here? Psalm 103. Listen to what Psalm 103 says. This is a picture of God and his love and his patience and his compassion for our lives. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious. Yeah, we get the message. He doesn't put up with sin. He's got wrath for what's wrong. He's a righteous judge. He doesn't tolerate our nonsense. But look at this. At the same time, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, thank goodness, because he could be chiding me every day. Nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to what our sins deserve. He doesn't deal with you according to what your sins deserve. It's not that bad. He doesn't deal with you according to what your sins deserve. The punishment is separation from God. He doesn't deal with us that way, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. Well, I've done this, God's now going to do this, and I've been so bad, God's going to curse me. He doesn't do that. You might deserve it, you might think he should do that, but he doesn't, because verse 11 says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. In verse 12, gets me every time. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. 1 Peter 2.10. This is every one of us who's a believer. This is our testimony. Once we were not a people. Remember that at the beginning of Hosea? Once we were not a people. But now you are God's people. How? Through Jesus Christ. Once you had not received mercy. Remember no mercy? But now you have received mercy In Jesus Christ, Hosea's pointing us to the marvelous reality of the Messiah and what he was going to be to us and to all who would turn to him by faith. This song stuck in my head as I'm reading this this week. This song stuck in my head, Victory in Jesus. Remember that one? Victory in Jesus. He sought me and he bought me. With his redeeming love. I'm a slave. No one wants me. Half price. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming love. Oh, victory in Jesus, my savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming love. He loved me ere I knew him. And now all my love is due him. He plunged me. Dumped me in victory. Doused me in victory beneath the cleansing flood of his blood. Has your exuberance of your salvation maybe been a little waning over COVID? Not meeting with God's people, you're kind of getting stale in your heart. Let this renew you in the wonder and the joy of your God. Let this renew you in a love for Jesus like never before. It shows us the immensity and intensity of God's love through the gospel. It also shows us this, God's covenantal bond with his children. Not, not just a once and for all say, but the covenantal bond of his children. Here's what it says in chapter 11. Here's the other passage you can read really intensely this afternoon. Chapter 11, let me read a portion of it for you. Starting at verse one. It shows us how how a husband and a wife are bonded together, how a father and a son are bonded together. Chapter 11, when Israel was a child, it says, in spite of all the indictments, all the things that Israel was doing wrong, but get this, at the end of the day, as he lays his head on the pillow, this is what God thinks, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing the bales and offering offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Picture, picture those of your parents, all the albums you have of your kids. I taught them to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of kindness and the bands of love. This is the nature of our God. I led them with the kinds, cords of kindness, the bands of love, and I became to them as one who sees the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down. And I fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim for I am God and not a man because we couldn't do this. I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst and I will not come with wrath. For those that grew up in this Churches that taught like God's just angry. He's an angry old man. He's an angry old man. He's coming after you. He's coming after you. You screw up once. He's coming after you. He's gonna slap your hand. He's gonna whack your butt. He's coming after you. He's coming after you. It's just not the character of our God. He comes after us to discipline us that he can have us back in his arms. God's not out to curse you, brothers and sisters. He's out to bless you. Here's the truth of this. God's covenant love for his children. You'll never wake up in the morning and find yourself written out of the will. You'll never come home one night and find all your stuff on the lawn. You'll never look at your driver's license and say, oh man, my last name Christian's been scratched out. There's a, I've been disowned. That'll never happen. You're eternally secure in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you truly repented and, and given your life to Jesus and followed him by faith, you are eternally secure by the power and the blood of Jesus Christ, and now we can walk in freedom, not freedom to sin, but freedom to love Jesus and walk in his ways, knowing that he will never, ever quit on us, even if you quit on him. That's covenantal love. That's the love of God. Here's the last thing it teaches us the monumental reality of God's heart for my life. The monumental reality of God's heart for my life, I've said it before but I have to say it again, what God wants more than anything from us is simply this, that we would love him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. Revelation 2, that we'd return to our first love, that we wouldn't let our our love get cold for God, but that we would allow our love for God to burn like never before. What God wants from us is not our sacrifices or empty religion or verbal ascension to some doctrinal beliefs or cleaning ourselves up for church on Sunday but not caring about the rest of the week. What God wants from us is our heart. Not our symbols, but our heart. He wants us. He wants to speak to us through his word. He wants us to commune with him through prayer. He wants us to bask in the presence and daily delight in him. That's our number one task as Christians. It's not to do, do, do. It's to delight in the reality of our God. How's that going, brothers and sisters? Is your life a fire for all the wrong things or a fire for the living God? God invites you. He invites me to simply to love him this morning. He invites us to this also. He invites us to allow our hearts to overflow with our love for others. Notice 1 John 4. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Amen. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to turn his wrath into kindness. But verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, though, God's love abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. In other words, the love that we see God showing his people through Hosea and Gomer is the same love that we ought to be loving others with. Love our enemies. Love our friends. Love our families, brothers and sisters, getting along and forgiving them and Loving our spouses. Love you, honey. No, no, it's much deeper than that. Even when they go astray, when they don't match up to our expectations, when, God forbid, they fall into sin, it's... Remember, we talked this a few weeks ago. It's not always you have to automatically cut them off. Like the love of God can come and restore relationships that the world can see the reality of Jesus in us. This is a call to love everybody with the love of God. It's not just receiving the love. It's now loving others. No distinction on who we put love in. is like, like, no distinction. Does it doesn't matter where they come from or... Nation or race or background, irregardless of economic standing or status, we love and we forgive and we love and we forgive often because God has loved and forgiven us. You know, the greatest thing that causes me angst in my life is not that I, I do have a hard time understanding God's love, but sometimes it's just hard to give it. And it's forgiving others who've wounded me deeply. And allowing them back into my life and trusting again and giving them grace. But if you read this text, how can we not love and forgive others when we've been loved and forgiven so deeply by God Himself? First John tells us this is a sign of whether you truly receive God's love if you can then take this love and give it to others. A reflection of the gospel when we live out Hosea and Gomer in our everyday relationships with the people that maybe we want to push the furthest away because they've hurt us so deeply, we bring them close and show them the reality of Jesus. Here's the last thing quickly we're feet determined to walk in God's ways. Truly loving God is to obey his commands. All of Hosea, don't do this, do this you're walking like this, I want you to walk like this. Let God lead you. Let God guide you. Let God rebuke you. Let God correct you. Let God lead you in the path of abundant life, in the path of everlasting life, which isn't just the day you die, it's here right now. Let God lead you In his love and his righteousness, his truth and his grace. And that, brothers and sisters, you can never go wrong. You can never go wrong if you walk in the ways of God. Choose to not, this is a warning for you. God will let hard things come into your life. Only to get your attention to bring you back. Because he's standing at the door of the home right now. He's standing there and he's welcoming us in. And he's saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. I love you and my love will never ever quit on you. That's the message of Hosea, profound, simple, life-changing. I pray we'd get it, we'd get it, and we'd get it today as we leave here, worshiping and praising Jesus for this is who he is in each of our lives. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this strong word that you've given us today. Father, I pray I've done adequate in trying to unpack the text of Hosea. Father, I pray that you take my feeble attempt to give an overview of a book with personal application and come, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit and make this text alive in everyone's hearts. For the wanderer, God, bring them back today. For the scourge, thinking that you've forgotten them, God, bring them in, bring them close. For the blatant sinner, God, who's never known you, help them to know you for the first time. For the on-fire believer, remind us, God, that it's in you and you alone that our life is found. For all of us, Father, flood us with your love, flood us with your mercy, flood us with your grace, flood us with your presence. For we have... You have every right to scatter us, to show us no mercy, to call us not yours. But yet, God, in your awesome power, your providential plan, you've done the opposite. You bring us near. You show us abundant mercy. and You tell us you're our very own. Thank you.